All right, we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome. We're going to be doing an episode on Operation Sea Load, which covers a Columbia drug trafficking organization tied to your boy, Pablo Escobar. And I got a friend with me, by the way, Dollface in the house. Hey. We got a lot to talk about, guys. We'll be reacting to a documentary today. It's going to be lit. Let's get into it, baby. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. This is the arrest paperwork, okay? So he turned himself in on February 13, 2019. This charge carries a death penalty. Florida is one of the states that still has the death penalty, guys. Facing two counts of premeditated murder. 6ix9ine ran with these two guys. Billy Seiko introduced 6ix9ine to your boy, Cafano Jordan, a.k.a. Shadi. No one else has these documents, by the way. I've been looking everywhere. 1812. So he was in this bad boy. We're going to go over his past, the gang ties, so that this all makes sense. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed that. And I got a couple of different intros that I'm playing with right now, guys. So um, we'll see which one makes the final cut. But anyway, without further ado, you guys requested this actually last week. I asked you guys, hey, I'm going to take a poll. What do you guys want to see? Do you guys want to see the Buffalo Shooter, Colombian drug trafficking organization tied to Pablo Escobar or uh, Paid in Full? And this one actually came second, um, this Colombian drug trafficking organization case. So I'm going to go ahead and make sure we get this thing filmed for y'all. And, uh, you know, this is right after the Vibes Cartel episode for some of you guys that are going to see this on the replay. This episode is going to drop in a few days. And shout out to Dollface for making that happen, by the way. You want to introduce yourself to the people real quick, Dollface? Hey, everyone. My name is Dollface. Duh. Um, <laughs> I'm here just helping out um, my friend. Yeah, cool. <laughs> awesome. Uh, <laughs> actually, I'm just here. I'm just here. I'm just here. Out. Uh, yeah, we we went to get Sunny real quick, and then we came back, and now we're here for the for the two Pete. Yeah, round two. Round two. So, um, so guys, as usual, we're gonna go ahead and react to an episode here from a show called FBI Files. Okay, as you guys know, I love this show, and um, this is an older documentary from the '90s slash early 2000s, and um, we're gonna cover Operation Sea Load here, guys, which uh, covers a, a Columbia drug trafficking organization from the early '90s in New York City. Okay, um, and they were tied to Pablo Escobar, and you guys are going to see this pretty good one. Uh, so I guess without anything you've got to say before we start this bad boy? I'm just excited to hop right into the information. Cool. I just need you guys to like the video. Like the goddamn video <laughs> right now. Subscribe to the channel. Yes. And let us know how the intro is. Yes, <laughs> let us know, obviously, in the comments. Uh, and uh, yeah, guys, other than that, man. Uh, let's get this bad boy started. I'm going to go ahead. And the, the name of the, it's called Operation Sea Load. This is the FBI Files YouTube channel, guys. So don't forget to always show love, subscribe, like. And I, what I'll do is I'll make sure to put the episode on uh, down below in the description for y'all. So, uh, yeah. So I, I guess without further ado, let's go ahead and enlarge this bad boy and get into reacting. And as you guys know, I've done, you know, drug traffic organization cases myself, DTOs. Uh, we used to call him for short and I actually did uh, Columbia drug trafficking for in the Miami field office before I left for HSI. So um, this is going to be a good one and I'll be able to give you guys some pretty damn good insider info as to how these investigations are done. So uh, without further ado, let's get into it. Your discretion is advised. <laughs> Robbery. Torture. Murder. A drug cartel will do anything to protect their business. No matter who's caught in the crossfire, the FBI and NYPD work together to fight back, risking their own lives by going undercover to unlock the secrets of deadly drug gangs, to bring them down from the inside. Hands up. 
All right, so I'll fast forward a little bit. We got our boy over here, Jim Kalsman from the FBI in New York office. When the streets of New York flooded with crack cocaine in the 1980s, a wave of violence threatened to drown the city. Colombian cartels brought the coke in and ran their operations with an iron fist. I'm Jim Kalstrom, former head of the FBI's New York office. Agents somehow had to infiltrate a complex crime ring, protected by a code of silence. Going head-to-head -head with killers, any misstep would be fatal. As you guys know, you know, cocaine in the 80s was crazy, and then that went and continued on into the 90s, okay? Um, and New York City was definitely a hub for uh, cocaine trafficking, because as you guys know, it's probably the biggest metropolitan area in the United States alongside L L.A. So, uh, yeah, let's get into it. Crack cocaine. Cheap, easy to make, and highly addictive. When it hits the streets, violent crime follows. Most of the bloodshed occurs at the street level, among users and dealers. But innocent people suffer too. NYPD detective Richard Eppolito worked narcotics. This one gentleman that owned a uh, Chinese restaurant came out one night and there was a couple of uh, individuals involved in drugs and they'll do anything they can to, to get their next fix. Oh, well, shit. this particular gentleman Damn. had gold teeth. And they thought nothing to kill him. They just shot him dead. And while he's down on the ground, they pulled out their switchblades and they start prying his teeth down. Killed him for his gold teeth, man. Crazy. Damn. And you know, I'll throw some uh, captioning in here just in case people got to listen to it at low volume or something like that. We got y'all, baby, over here. Fed it. Like the video, guys. Let's continue on. But yes, this was not crazy, guys, for this to be happening in the 80s and 90s where people would kill you just for your gold teeth, man. Wild stuff. In New York, the crack epidemic began in the late 80s. NYPD Lieutenant Mike Garrity. It was an extremely violent time. You had turf wars. You had people who just controlled a certain corner. If you set up to make a sale on that corner, there'd be a drive-by shooting. We were losing our youth. We were losing innocent bystanders to drive-bys. Everyone in the index... And just so you guys know, um, we did an episode on paid in full. Uh, you know, on also covered crack with Rich Porter and Apple Martinez, etc. in the late 80s and 1990s as well. And, you know, that was going on in Harlem, right? So this case is going to cover a different area of New York, but nonetheless, violent, you know, drug trafficking organizations ruled New York City back then. And it was bad, man. It was really bad. You guys got to remember, this is before the surveillance era, you know, of cameras being on every corner. So people were doing crazy shit all the time. Six crimes went up. It was out of control back then. But arresting users and dealers individually does little to slow the onslaught. You know, it's never ending. Uh, it's just a constant flow. For every one or two guys you take down, there's others to replace them. Facts. The only way to stem the flow of narcotics is to find the organizations that import the drugs and dismantle them. Bam, you gotta go after the source, baby. To do this, the Department of Justice creates the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, known as C-13. Okay, so let's talk about this real quick, okay? Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, okay? And we're going to rewind this just a little bit. Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. That means OSREF, my friends, okay? 
That's what we use in the law enforcement world to refer to as OSADEF. So it was made to combat major, right, large, and typically transnational drug trafficking organizations that transcend borders, okay? So OSADEF cases, guys, are what is designated on the most significant of DTOs or drug trafficking organizations. I've done several OSADEF cases myself. <coughs> Excuse me, as I sneeze over here. Um, when I was in Miami, I did a couple of OSADEF cases. And when I was in Texas, I did a big OSADEF case that centered around crystal methamphetamine. And um, it's very difficult to get your case approved as an OSADEF or Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. And basically, and see, no one else on YouTube, by the way, can talk about this shit because no one's actually done an OSADEF case as the lead case agent. I was the lead case agent. I created the, the OSADEF uh, paperwork, everything, filed it. And the way it goes is this. You need to have one or more agency involved, typically one, at least one fe other federal agency involved, right? Because it's considered a task force, which means can be done by one agency. Then you need to have a sophisticated organization. And then more importantly, you need to establish that your, like, your organization is linked to some large-scale drug trafficking organization, right? You call them a CPOT or a RPOT, regional priority uh, organized target, or a CPOT, which is typically international, right? Um, and you need to be able to link your drug traffic organization to one of these two pots of, uh, of how do I say this, of, of, as a source of supply, okay? And then you got to write up a whole narrative on why your case deserves to be designated as OSADEF case. And then you also need to um, have a bunch of targets identified. And you need to pretty much identify who's the suppliers in your organization, who's the couriers, who's the um, you know distributors, who's the financers, etc. And... Um, it's not easy to do. You know, my OSADEF write-ups were 10 plus pages easily, right? And that doesn't include all the paperwork that comes in where you have to fill in all the information. Um, and it's got to be pretty damn good because what happens is you have to go and then do a presentation in front of uh, the OSADEF committee, right? And when you go to the OSADEF committee, there's someone from FBI there, DEA there, IRS there, um, HSI there. All the federal agencies are there, okay? U.S. Marshals, ATF, everyone, okay? And... You present your case there, and they pretty much, you know, okay, we saw your presentation, whatever, and then if it gets approved, they approve it, and then you get something called uh, an OSADEF number assigned to you, okay? And there's uh, different OSADEF regions in the United States. Uh, last I checked, I think there were seven. They're pretty much in every major city. There's obviously one in Miami, one in Houston, one in um, uh, New York City, L.A., Chicago, um, Phoenix. So they're all over the place, pretty much all the main Drug hub cities have an OSADEF strike force there, and um, pretty much it was, it was created, man, to, to dismantle and disrupt large-scale drug trafficking organizations. I'm telling you guys this all from the top of my head, by the way, because I used to do these cases myself. I mean, obviously, I could pull up the DOJ website for y'all, but that is how you get an OSADEF case proposed, approved, and then you get an OSADEF case number, and then bam, once you have an OSADEF case assigned to you, that's a big deal because now you can get federal funding to pay um, you know, overtime to local and state police officers that work on your case or detectives. You get funding for equipment, laptops, um, surveillance equipment, cameras, whatever it may be that you need for your investigation, undercover fronts, all that stuff. And then most importantly, you get a dedicated OSADEF AUSA, which as you guys know, your prosecutor is very important, especially when it comes to federal cases. So that AUSA is dedicated to OSADEF so they don't have as many cases so they can really focus on your cases. Any big drug investigation that you guys see that is prosecuted, nine out of ten times is going to be an OSADEF case, okay? Um, so if someone has an OSADEF case, you know for a fact that they did some work to do that case. Any of these big RICO cases that are involved with drugs, any of these big 
uh, organized crime cases typically are OCDF cases. Even if it's not centered around drugs, OCDF has kind of changed their um, kind of changed the layout a bit, and now they're more focused on organized crime as a whole. So I actually had an OCDF case that was primarily human smuggling. You know, a couple years ago, you weren't able to do that. So it's good that the OCDF initiative has switched a bit from, you know, only going after primarily drugs to other facets of organized crime, especially since other types of crimes are starting to rise up. Like fraud, for example, huge. You know, you're getting more fraudsters and scammers now than drug traffickers. Why? Well, because with fraud and scamming, it doesn't carry as big of a penalty. So why would someone go ahead and sell a bunch of cocaine and crack and all that heroin, whatever, and do a bunch of time? when they can go ahead and start scamming people for credit cards and make way more money or make the same amount of money with far less risk, right? When you investigate and when you do drug trafficking, every agency and their mom investigates drugs. You got the FBI after you. You got the DEA after you. You got ATF after you. You got Homeland Security Investigations after you. Everyone does Title 21 cases nowadays, which is drug trafficking, okay? However, not everyone does fraud and financial crimes. The main agency that do fraud and financial crimes are uh, Homeland Security Investigations, the Secret Service, and the FBI. Those are the three, and, and the IRS as well, but they don't typically do fraud as much. They're more concerned with like violations of the tax code. All right? Mm -hmm. So um, so anyway, guys, that's a quick little summary on OCDF and it's how it's transformed over the decades. Hope you guys enjoyed that because I know OCDF like the back of my hand. I just went off the top of my fucking head on that one, man. So uh, that's how OCDF works in the United States. Uh, Dolphins, you got anything on that? That was beautifully said. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, I learned a lot though. Yeah. During that little segment. So uh so yeah, so th this in this case, man, they they basically designated this an OCDF case and they're starting to go after the suppliers of the cocaine, which then in turn becomes crack, which leads to all the violence. Makes sense. Known as C thirteen. The task force is made up of Oh, and then real quick, C thirteen, for those of you guys that watched our, our Rich Porter case on paid in full, C eleven, as you guys remember was uh, the squad that handled, you know, violent crimes uh, um, in New York City, right? And they went after, you know, Alpo Martinez, Rich Porter, etc. C-13, also a drug group, probably assigned to the Safe Streets Task Force as well, um, was created to go after this Colombian organization, which we're going to talk about here in a second. Um, but that's how the FBI organizes their groups, guys. They go off of, it typically goes with a letter and then a number, and that's considered an FBI squad. As I explained on the last episode, an FBI squad is comprised of an SSA, su supervisory special agent, and then somewhere between five to 10 agents that work underneath. All those agents are field agents. They go ahead and actually do the investigations. They carry the cases, etc. They help each other. And then the supervisor is a first line supervisor. He doesn't carry any cases. He reports all the stuff up the chain to the assistant special agent in charge, and obviously the SAC or the special agent in charge. Um, assistant special agents in charge are also known as ASACs. Okay, and this hap this they have this. You know whether it's the FBI, U.S. Uh, you know Homeland Security Investigations, DEA, etc. We all use the same exact format when it comes to um, the supervisor chain. All right. NYPD detectives and FBI agents. They know exactly who they're up against according to Supervisory Special Agent Fernando Llanos. In New York in the early 90s. So he was the 14, or the supervisor. 14 is another term for supervisor because they're a GS-14. He was a supervisor over this group. Uh, the, the situation was that uh, you had Colombians uh, in control of the drug trade. The two main drug gangs are Colombia's Medellin and Cali cartels. When the cartels ship drugs into the country, they smuggle them in by packing them among valid cargo, according to U.S. Customs Special Agent Phil Spinelli. 
with containerized cargo. Okay, so this is very important. Number one, have I done freight drug cases? Yes. I actually had a big one in Miami before I um, resigned. Uh, but what I do want to draw to your attention is that they have a U.S. Customs Special Agent here, okay? Now, you guys are probably wondering, well, Customs Special Agent, Myron, what the fuck are you talking about? Yes, guys, the U.S. Customs Service no longer exists. It was disbanded, right, after 2003. What happened was they took the Immigration Naturalization Service, a.k.a. INS, and then they took the U.S. Customs Service, right, um, USCS, and they combined them into one agency. What did that agency end up being? Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, which then has the two components, Homeland Security Investigations and then Enforcement and Deportation Removal Operations, which I broke down for you guys before. But the thing you need to know is that a Customs Special Agent is technically nowadays a Homeland Security Investigation Special Agent, which is what I used to be. Okay, so for all intents and purposes, if this was prior to 2003, I would be a Customs Agent. Okay, so I know Customs very well. Um, but Customs Agents typically, back then, investigated the importation of controlled substances, okay, which also falls under Title 21. So Customs Agents had Title 21 authority. Title 21 is the drug code in the United States, okay? And back then, and even to this day, because I know this from my own experience, Colombian criminal organizations ship drugs a lot of the times through many different means. Uh, submarines, <laughs> through submarines, through uh, big freight ships like this, so and they they smuggle it in food they commingle it in with um produce there's so many different ways that they smuggle drugs in it's they get very creative these organizations uh but this has been going on for decades guys you can conceal the narcotics in just about any type of cargo that you ship into the united states They've liquefied narcotics and tried to put it into bottles. They've uh, uh, disguised it uh, as dominoes. They've put it into cans of guava paste and cans of peaches where the peaches were completely sealed. Crazy, right? And That's they ship crazy. it in through New York City, one of the busiest ports in the world. In the New York area, we receive approximately 5,000 containers a day. Each of those containers probably have somewhere in the neighborhood of about 18, 20, maybe 30,000 pounds of cargo. So it's extremely difficult. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. Crazy, guys. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. So this is great. This is a fantastic task force that they got set up here. You got the FBI, right? Um, who, you know, as you guys know, the FBI investigates a multitude of different crimes, right? To include drug trafficking as well. Typically, when it's tied to a sophisticated drug trafficking organization, you got the NYPD, right? Um, who obviously is a state uh, and local agency. However, you know, the NYPD has a strong grasp on the city of New York, okay? You can't escape those guys. And then you got um, U.S. Customs Service, who, uh, you know, obviously has a large um, <clears throat> amount of authority when it comes to um, anything to do with inbound or outbound in the United States, like I told you guys before. This is the beauties of ha the beauties of having a task force that work together because when you have different agencies working together, they can leverage each other's power. So I'll tell you guys this now from my experience, when because uh, we because I had customs authority too as a homeland security agent, right? When a when a ship comes into the United States, FBI agents, NYPD, they can't search that ship because um, they don't have customs authority. However, as a customs agent or a customs officer, okay, 
And which, by the way, guys, the customs officers are the guys that you see in the blue uniforms at the airports. All right. Those are customs officers, CBP, Customs and Border Protection. Right. Which used to be the Customs Service back then. They used to be custom, they used to be called Customs Inspectors. And then you had Customs Special Agents. But now you got HSI, Homeland Security Investigation Special Agents and CBP, Customs and Border Protection. So they're two different agencies now. But anyway, but it used to be all under one. Customs Special Agents were essentially the detectives and the Customs Inspectors. You could think of them as like the police officers in uniform. Right. This is prior to 9-11 and prior to 2003 with the Homeland Security Act. Right. That got put into play under Bush. Uh, but anyway, since FBI agents and NYPD don't have customs authority, customs agents do. So they can go ahead and search a freight ship with zero warrants. OK, because when something comes into the United States or out of the United States, you absolve yourself of Fourth Amendment protection. The Fourth Amendment is, you know, the right to privacy um, from search and seizure. Right. But that is thrown out the window once you try to come into the United States or out of the United States. OK, because obviously customs, uh, customs agents or officers want to be able to search everyone coming in and everyone going out for national security reasons, for duty purposes so that they could pay their taxes um, and a bunch of, uh, you know, make sure that contraband is smuggled into the United States, etc. OK, so that is a Fourth Amendment. Uh, how do I say this? It's a way to get around the Fourth Amendment is through customs authority, okay, or border, or, or is also commonly known as border search authority, all right? So it was smart for the FBI to have the U.S. Customs Service involved in this investigation where you're targeting a transnational drug trafficking organization that you know imports drugs. You know, it's a non-negotiable. If you don't have a customs agent on board, or what the fuck are you doing? Are you stupid? Because FBI does not have customs search authority. When the drugs hit New York, they are distributed across the country. The task force is determined to shut off this supply of drugs and break the backs of the cartels. Our purpose in uh, the task force was to build cases, uh, try to monitor these individuals, try to infiltrate them, and take them down. To do so, Detective Apolito immerses himself undercover in the shadowy world of drug traffickers, and he needs help. So he's the, the NYPD guy, productive cases, the UC, the undercover. Uh, involve confidential informants because they know what's going on. They're already on the inside. Once the detective develops trust with an informant, doors begin to open. And let me say this. Confidential informants are 100% required to do big, complex conspiracy cases. You need someone to get you into the organization and nine out of 10 times, it's either going to be a confidential informant, a cooperating defendant, or a witness of, to some degree. But you need a cooperator that's in the inside to get you in, especially with these uh, drug conspiracies. Let's continue on. I had one particular confidential uh, informant that was extremely reliable. In December 1991, the informant tells Epolito about a man named Eduardo. He says Eduardo deals in cloned cell phones and might be connected to the Medellin cartel. He knows the Colombian cartels desperately want to do business with the American mafia. They felt uh, traditional organized crime. And this is a very common thing, by the way, guys, with uh, Colombian uh, criminal organizations. Um, cell phones are a big thing because cell phones are expensive in Colombia. So... Um, getting cell phones, uh, man, I, I had a friend that actually did a case on um, people that were basically stealing iPhones and smuggling them back to Colombia so, to be sold for a way higher price. So um, there definitely is a market for um, 
there's like underground smartphone cell phone market in Colombia. So this is a 91. There was a demand for this shit. So I can only imagine how much more crazy it is now. Um, but I, I, I knew about my buddy had this case back in like 2019. So um, there's definitely a market for it because it's more expensive in Colombia, especially iPhones. iPhones are expensive everywhere else ex uh, uh, outside of the United States a lot of the times, guys. Um, and this is the undercover agent right here, by the way, not agent, but he's he's an NYPD detective that's assigned to this task force, and he's with uh, NYPD. So he's going to be the main you see here. So as you guys can see, the Colombian criminal organizations uh, want to work with the American mafia, you know, your traditional La Cosa Nostra, Italian mobs, uh, and for those of you guys that are wondering, La Cosa Nostra is um, Italian or Sicilian, well, same thing, I think, uh, for our thing, okay, um, which is, you know, which is uh, how the mafia operated in the United States, and, and obviously in the 90s, the mafia still existed in the 90s, guys, um, you know, it, people said, oh, no, they took the mafia down in the 70s, yeah, they took a couple families down and everything else like that, but in the 90s, the mafia was definitely still alive and well, okay, maybe not as strong and as powerful as they were in the 70s, but they were still around, for sure, and especially in New York. I was here a long time, they know all the ins and outs, all the tricks, they have all the contacts, and that's basically what they were looking for. This could be the opportunity Epolito's been looking for to get inside the cartel. He decides to go undercover, posing as a member of the mafia in an effort to orchestrate a large-scale drug purchase from the cartel. The detective asks the informant to set up a meeting with Eduardo and introduce him as Tony Romano, his undercover identity. The informant goes to Eduardo. And Doesn't get more Italian than that right there. Tony Romano. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, what are your thoughts so far, Dolphy? Is anything? It's very interesting. Like, right. I'm just tuned in. Okay. And by the way, she hasn't watched the episode before, guys. So she's watching it <laughs> brand new, just like you guys. Yeah. All right. When tells him about Tony Romano, Eduardo seems interested in a mafia connection and agrees to meet. But he warns the informant. If it's a setup, they'll be hell to pay. <laughs> Undercover work is among the most dangerous assignments an officer takes up. If he's identified as a cop, he and his informant will likely be killed. Every meeting is scripted so the undercover knows what to say and what to avoid. An undercover operation is a carefully orchestrated deal. Uh, we just don't send the undercover out there. He doesn't operate in a vacuum. Uh, what we do, we have pre-meets before we go out. We have tech plans. We go over the things. We try to cover every scenario that possibly could happen. And when we decide to go out, the safety of the undercover is paramount. We have people that are assigned strictly to watch the undercover, provide security for them. You try to control the meet location. You're going to pick a location that you're somewhat familiar with. Okay, what he's referring to, guys, is there's something called a, um, you know, a operation briefing, okay? And at the briefing, anytime you're going to do any type of enforcement action, whether it's an undercover meet, you're meeting with bad guys, you're, um, you're you know, doing a takedown, you're doing uh, surveillance, whatever it may be, these are all considered enforcement actions for most law enforcement agencies, okay? Um, and what you're going to do is you're going to do a briefing. Everyone that's going to be involved in the briefing is going to be there. Uh, you're going to turn, you know, delegate roles, right? So let's say it's an arrest warrant. Hey, you guys are going to be perimeter. You guys are going to be the entry team. Uh, you guys are going to be 
um, the uh, the uh, the mobile team, which is basically maybe you identify people that are there. Uh, then you're gonna have someone else, there, an interview team, the uh, de um, a delivery team, you know, or basically like a driver team where guys like transport the bad guy to wherever they need to go. Especially with these big operations where you're arresting 50, 100 people at a time. You got a command center, you got the case agent there delegating roles, everything else like that. So that's what happens at the briefing. You're setting everything up. So for now that we know what operation briefing is, let's talk about operation briefing when it uh, pertains to undercover operation. So what the NYPD detect the detective was saying was is correct. You are going to have a meeting, but it's going to be a little bit more detailed than that. A lot of times you're going to identify who the meeting is going to be with. Um, you're going to have the the, uh, the, uh, the confidential informant uh, like meet the entire briefing team so everyone knows who the confidential informant is so there's no you know accidental shootings or accidents or whatever it may be. Then the undercover is obviously going to be there as well. Um, there's going to be an extraction team, okay, for that undercover. And what I mean by that is that you're going to have four to five agents, six agents in another vehicle. Their only job is to watch the undercover. And if anything happens, they're there to go in, get him out. That's the whole thing, okay? So you're going to have your surveillance team, then you're going to have your extraction teams as well. So undercover op operations are very dangerous. So, um, you know, so you're making sure that the undercover is wired up. You can hear everything going on, right? They have, you know, so the most sophisticated equipment on. So, like, whether you know, some kind of micro uh, uh, microphone, some small microphone, so that you can hear what the hell's going on, how the conversation is going. Obviously, it's transmitting while simultaneously recording at the same time, so you can use that as evidence. But more importantly, you need to be able to hear what the hell is going on. And if there is an issue, you know, a lot of times the undercover, this is all public information, there will be a safe word that the undercover, or a phrase, which will be like the distress signal. He'll say something like. Obviously, you're not going. It's not help, but let's say for to make things simple, it's help. Then the extraction team knows to go in, grab him, get him out, deal with any you know perpetrators that might be trying to harm the undercover, and then the rest of the surveillance units converge in as well. Obviously, that's the last case, worst case scenario. You don't never want that to happen because now the case is blown. But you have to take these uh, prerequisite uh, these prerequisite steps to ensure that the undercover and the confidential informant are both safe because you are in a situation where it's extremely dangerous you're dealing with criminals you, you know a lot of times the criminals are going to do try to do counter surveillance they're going to try to see if they make the guy if he's a, as a law enforcement officer um and you know you got to be ready for any type of situation so these briefings are literally life-saving you need to have them right for any type of enforcement action whether it's undercover i don't care if it's you're just showing up and sending undercover in to go buy a, a couple grams of cocaine from someone that he's de dealt deal with for a year you have to always have a briefing and we used to have a rule with hsi most agencies have this too if you don't go to the briefing you can't go to the operation and i used to have that as a case agent strict rules if an agent was like yo uh, i want to help out whatever if you didn't come to my brief i'd be like no you can't help because last thing i want is like he doesn't know who the, what the undercover looks like he doesn't know who the informant is and then some bullshit happens and he don't know what he's doing so these meetings are extremely important guys very very important uh let's continue on he decides to have epilito meet eduardo in a local bar set up outside we and this is smart obviously to you know hold your undercover your first undercover meeting in public somewhere right just in case prevailed you know them arriving and going in but we also sent agents and detectives you know inside very common to do that when you're going to meet somewhere you have some undercovers uh and some other agents in there you know wearing plain clothes whatever watching what the hell is going on the key is never appearing too anxious. It was best not to jump right into the drugs because uh, a lot of times when you do that, they raise up on you and they think you're the cops or the feds and they back off. So I figured I'd start off small, start off low and try to do some cellular fraud. Uh. Smart. This is how I used to do my undercover cases as well. 
You never work. You always work your way up. Okay. You never start with, all right, man, I'm trying to buy some crystal meth or some heroin or some cocaine. No, 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 no. You always have to start with some bullshit up front. A lot of the time it's marijuana. But in this case, you know, they're going with an even more bullshit crime, which is, you know, cell phone fraud. Okay. Business with this guy. Epolito suggests a deal for cloned cell phones, reprogrammed phones that use an unwitting customer's service for free. He says he needs them for his mob activities. And I also told him that I don't want to jump right into the drug aspect because I don't know who you are. You know, so let's do this, and if we both come out of it okay, you know, we can move on. So a little bit of psychology there. So basically, guys, what's going on here is they're doing a controlled purchase, okay, of bullshit cell phones, essentially, from the Colombians, all right? And, and they're doing this for a couple of reasons. Number one, to establish that they have the funds, right? That's very important to show that, yes, we got money. We can make this happen. So social proof. Then also to show trust. Hey, I'm going to buy these cellular telephones from you and you guys aren't going to get busted. And then number three, so that they can go ahead and move their way up, right? The chain to get into, involved into more nefarious activities, all right? But once the money starts rolling in, then you can start, slowly start to get yourself into the organization. Eduardo agrees to clone the phones for a price. After the meet, Epolito debriefs the task force. By now, intelligence agents have uncovered more details about the drug dealer. Eduardo was considered like a street dealer or a mule. He, uh, he wasn't well placed within any organization. He's a guy that would uh, broker deals, try to hook you up with somebody, you know, stuff like that. He, he definitely wasn't our main focus in this whole investigation. We wanted to use him as a stepping stone to go higher up or go up the ladder. Okay, let me let me just break this down for y'all real quick because I don't. Th this is extremely important. You guys need to all know this. In the criminal world, when you do investigations, you're gonna have guys like this dude, like Eduardo, all over the fucking place. Okay, and what these guys do is they don't really have any type of like real criminal affiliation. What they do is is they know guys. Okay, so they don't necessarily have the drugs. They don't necessarily have the weapons. They don't necessarily have the cell phones or the fraud or the scamming device or whatever the hell that you need, but they know someone that does. And what they do is they go ahead and they put, they insert themselves in between you and that person. They broker the deal and they get some off the top, right? That's how the, that's how it goes typically. Now, as you build more and more trust, sometimes they'll introduce you to their connect, right? Especially when you're trying to get bigger and bigger quantities of whatever the hell you're trying to do, whether you need more guns, you need more drugs, you need harder uh, harder drugs, um, or you need something that's a little bit more sophisticated that he can't necessarily provide or the person that he's getting the, the stuff from doesn't trust him to provide, okay? That's how you get involved. But in the criminal world, when I was an agent, you would always deal with fucking ass clowns like this who were middlemen, okay? And you need to get around these guys as soon as possible. And I'm talking to you guys now as a former agent. My goal, anytime my informant knew a guy like this, and informants always know fucking idiots like this, that, yo, I know a guy, I know a guy, blah, blah, blah. Nine <laughs> out of ten times when your informant comes in and tells you about it, uh, someone, it's going to be someone like this who's a fucking middleman. You got to get around this middleman as quickly as possible because what's going to happen with these middlemen a lot of times is, is you may have to do two, three deals to build some trust with them. And then 
uh, and then eventually they'll get you to their connect or their source, right? But they're going to be involved a lot of times so that they can continue to make sure that they make money because they brought that that source a valid customer, okay? But the goal is you got to get this guy out of the fucking picture. Well, he's never going to actually come out of the picture, but they're going to be involved in the transactions, but you need to go ahead and meet the goddamn source, okay? Because these guys, a lot of the times, are fucking useless, and all they can do is get you the stuff or maybe make something happen, happen kind of, but... Nine out of ten times, they're not the real criminals, okay? They just know the real criminals. Claiming he's satisfied with the clone phone deal, Eppolito takes the case to the next level. He sets up another deal with Eduardo, this time for drugs. The detective has to maintain his mobster image. You basically have to show credibility. You have to be able to convince the people uh, that you're who you say you are. In doing so, it means you have to walk the walk, talk the talk. Authorities need to play it cool. They don't want to order too much cocaine right away, which could tip Eduardo off. In fact, that's a red flag. So what we decided to do was just order a small amount. So one kilogram of cocaine is what we ordered from Eduardo. Okay, now that's a lot. I ain't gonna... <laughs> That, that, that is a lot, guys. Uh, one kilo of cocaine is quite a bit. Um, but obviously, um, I guarantee you that they probably had done like maybe a, a deal or two after that cell phone thing. Um, and they probably had bought like an ounce or two prior, you know. Or, or Eduardo had told them, I got a good cocaine connect with some Colombians. So it wouldn't sound crazy for them to say, well, let me get a kilo. Okay. Um, and you guys also got to keep in mind as well that... Um, the mafia, okay, and I don't know if you guys know this, but the mafia typically frowned upon drug trafficking, okay? Back in the olden days, right, the you know, the Michael Francis days, whatever, the OG guys, um, selling drugs could get you killed, okay? It was looked at as a dirty business. It brought a lot of attention on you, as I discussed earlier with you guys. Drug trafficking attracts attention from every agency because everyone investigates drugs. You got, you know, staying local narcotics squads on you. You got the feds on you, FBI, DEA, ATF, um, customs back then, or Homeland Security Investigations, you know. Uh, fucking everyone and their mom investigates drug trafficking, man. So the mafia was smart enough to understand that drug trafficking is a dirty business, okay? And it brings violence with it, okay, a lot of the times, right? Obviously, it's not like the mafia weren't beating the shit out of people, whatever, but it brings even more violence, a higher propensity for violence, all right? You know, it's one thing to, you know, be loan sharking people and busting kneecaps. It's another thing to be, be fucking ordering Sicarios to run after people and kill them. You know what I'm saying? So that the, the mafia always looked at it like it was a dirty business. So for him, right? Coming in as a mob boss or or as a mafia guy, a made guy, um, you know, him asking for a kilo of cocaine, though a lot, there was probably some conversations had where Eduardo said, I got Colombian Connects. If you say you got Colombian Connects, okay, cool. Can you get me a kilo? Because I can't be meeting up with you all the time doing fucking drug deals. I'm a part of the mafia. You know, this just could get me killed. This can't get me whacked for doing drug trafficking. So a kilo is a lot. You know, no one is going to do their first buy for a kilo and if they did do it for the, the first time obviously you know they're, they're summarizing the case here um if it was the first buy then i guarantee you there were some conversations that led up to that because a kilo of cocaine guys um when i was an agent back down in south texas was about twenty eight thousand dollars you know uh 20 28k um and then if you get it to like a new york city uh you know uh chicago or whatever up north uh it's gonna raise up to somewhere around 40 to fifty thousand. you know so back then it was probably right around the same thing maybe 30 40k back then in New York City, so, uh, you know, kilos quite a bit.
Eduardo comes through with a single kilo. A good sign he may be connected to a cartel. Oh no, that's not just a good sign. That is a sign. If you're if you're getting kilogram amounts, you are now what I would consider a higher level drug trafficker by far. You know, you're not gonna get kilos as a fucking bum. And the other thing too, I want to tell you guys as well, as far as uh, you know, the importance of undercovers being congruent to who they say they are. Um, that's almost life or death type shit. If you're an undercover and you purport yourself to be a certain person, you have to be that person. You need to look like the role, sound like the role, even smell like the role, okay? Um, and I'll tell you guys a quick little story real fast. Um, you know, we'll keep going, and then I'll tell you guys a story after, because I, I, want, I want to keep going through with this documentary so I don't off track here, but it's a, it's a good story. Undercover officers follow Eduardo after the deal. They need to determine if the man's really connected to a cartel. Someone who can lead them up the chain of command. Or just another small-time dealer who cannot help further the investigation. Okay. This is fucking critical, guys. And I, I wish the narrator... This is... This, man... Yo, like the goddamn video. Because only on Fed are you guys gonna get sauce like this, why it's so important. The reason why you have to, if you make a drug deal happen, especially for a larger amount, let's say a couple of ounces, half a pound, a pound, a kilo, whatever it is, you need to follow the person you bought it from immediately after. Why? Well, I'll tell you guys right now. Nine out of ten times, when you're dealing in higher quantities of drugs, not we're not talking grams and you know maybe an ounce here or whatever, but if you're buying a couple of ounces, right, or a couple of pounds or a kilo or more, right, you need to follow the person after the drug deal happens. And the reason why is because nine out of ten times that person needs to pay that fucking person back that gave them the drugs on consignment. Okay? Because a lot of the times the person that sells you the drugs, right, when you're undercover or whatever, isn't the person that supplied it. Okay? It's someone else that that person was able to get the drugs from. Hence, this dude, Eduardo, being a middleman, which is why he's able to deal with cell phones in one day, then all of a sudden be dealing with drugs the next day. Suppliers and guys that are actually involved, you know, knee deep in the crime that they're involved in, typically deal in that crime alone. What do I mean by this? If I'm a high level drug trafficker, I'm dealing drugs only typically. I'm not going to be also involved in arms trafficking and uh, credit card fraud or whatever. I may be involved where I dabble in it, but I'm not going to be super, super involved and have my hand in multiple cookie jars and open myself up to more potential investigations being opened against me. If I'm a drug trafficker and I'm dealing kilogram amounts, Right, and I'm like a supplier, that's more than likely what I'm gonna do. Right? That's my expertise, that's what I'm gonna do. Um, so this guy Eduardo, right, a telltale sign that he's a middleman. And again, guys, like the video, because ain't nobody gonna give you all sauce like this. The telltale sign someone's a fucking middleman is when they're doing all types of different crimes. Okay, that's how you know that they're not really linked to the source like that. Or I don't like they're not necessarily the supplier. So after a deal like this happens where they bought a fucking kilogram, guarantee you they probably paid them at least 10 or 15K for this, by the way, with OSADEF funds, which is why it's so important to have an OSADEF case because they give you a lot that so you can go ahead and make shit happen like this. They bought the kilogram, right? A control purchase. He goes after the purchase is done. He's got to pay off his supplier. All right. Because a kilo like that, they're going to be on his ass. All right. Whoever is giving him a kilo of cocaine is going to be connected. So they go ahead and they do surveillance and follow them back. And this is what happened. And we used to do this all the time as well. After we did our drug trafficking cases, or, or we did our control purchases, I had a big meth case out of Texas. And every time after we did a deal or we did a gun deal or whatever it may be, we went and followed the guy and did surveillance to see where the hell they went after to identify other conspirators. Nobody knows, first of all, if in fact we really do have a narcotic smuggling organization. There seems to be hints of it. 
There seems to be smoke, and what we're trying to do is see if, in fact, there is a fire there. Investigators spot a man and a woman who might be associated with Eduardo going in and out of a house. Hopefully, authorities can ID the pair later. This sort of meticulous and time-consuming work is required to gather intelligence and build a case against the cartels who operate under a strictly enforced code of silence. Absolutely, surveillance is non-negotiable, baby. You gotta, you gotta do the the legwork. The C-13 task force also checks the purity percentage of the cocaine Eduardo sold them. It was extremely high quality. It was in the high 90s, which was like telling you that it's you're basically into the source, which is what we needed. Pure cocaine means no middlemen have cut it down yet. It looks like Eduardo is a good lead into the cartels. Very, very important. After uh, you see some drugs, you have to test it so that you can figure out how close you are to the source. The purer it is, the typically the better, um, the, the higher probability that you're closer to your source a lot of times. If it's cocaine, your international source. If it's methamphetamine, um, your international, well, <laughs> methamphetamine is a whole other thing. But for I'll give you guys an example. When I was doing my, my methamphetamine case uh, out of Texas, okay, we were, we were, and I will do a breakdown for y'all on this case. I, you guys have heard me refer to it a million times. It was probably one of the it was probably one of the biggest cases I've ever done. We had dirty cops involved. It was crazy shit. But long story short, and that one would probably take two to three hours for me to break down for y'all. But anyway, when I was doing my methamphetamine case, we were seizing methamphetamine. <coughs> Bless you. Excuse me. We were seizing methamphetamine, guys. That was coming back ninety-seven percent pure. Now, for some of you guys that aren't aware of how methamphetamine is. You can't get methamphetamine that 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 um pure in the United States because the materials you used right to create methamphetamine are heavily regulated in the United States. Okay, if you watch the show Breaking Bad, you know this, right? So the only way that you're going to get meth that pure is it's going to come from Mexico. Okay, and they call it Mexican super meth. They call it ice. It looks like glass. Okay, mm -mm. and um, when I was doing my case, I knew it was coming from uh, Michoacan, right, which is an a, a area in Mexico that is notorious for having, you know, meth labs and all the other stuff. So it was coming from there, and which is why we were able to make our case Osadef, because I was able to directly link that our drugs were coming from, um, from the Templars and also from some, from some Zetas, okay? But when you have drugs that pure, it's a great sign, right? that you have a, 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 a sophisticated drug traffic organization, and more importantly, you're close to the source, which makes your case sexier because now you can articulate in your case, I need funding for surveillance, for overtime, for equipment, etc., because I'm getting drugs that are 90 plus percent pure, okay? And just so you guys understand, in the, in the federal system, anything over 80% is considered pure, okay? So if you're getting in the 90s, that's fucking insane. That's insane, all right? Um, and then for them to get cocaine in the 90s in new york city is crazy all right so I, I guarantee you they were probably going nuts when they found out that the cocaine was coming back in the, in the 90s in new york city because new york city right is obviously up north most of the time by the by the time drugs get up to new york city it's been stepped on two or three times in the carolinas right typically coming from miami or uh or, or atlanta or texas whatever it's been stepped on a few times by the time it gets up there into new york so that they can make more money all right so if you're getting drugs that pure in new york city hmm. that's a damn good sign that point we were oh also purity affects sentencing the more pure the drugs 80, like i said 80 percent or above it significantly increases 
the time that the drug traffickers spend in, in jail. So that's also very important for the prosecutors because prosecutors get awarded based on how much time their defendants get. So that's also good for the U.S. Attorney's Office to be able to say, yo, we're seizing drugs off the street that are 80% more, 80% or more off, and then that goes into sentencing guidelines as well. So that's another important factor uh, to it. You have anything, Dollface? Um, um, the agency, like how they set it up is like smart. Like I like the fact like how they did the briefing, like they prepared a person that's actually going into the situation Yeah. so they don't go in there blind. I didn't even know that they, that they do that. Yeah, it's a lot of work, man. It's a lot of work. Yes, and these cartels smart too. Yep, absolutely. All right. Uh, we'll get back into it. And you said Realize Eduardo. Have- What's up? Yeah, Eduardo's the middleman. Eduardo's the plug. Yeah, he is the plug for sure. <laughs> and somebody that could possibly take us to the types of individuals of drug traffickers that the task force was geared to target. It's the first milestone in what will be a long and dangerous investigation. In 1991, New York C-13 task force tries to infiltrate a Colombian drug cartel, beginning with a low-level broker named Eduardo. After one successful cocaine buy, Eduardo asks undercover detective Richard Eppolito to meet the drug dealers Eduardo represents. So he orchestrated a meet with uh, a female individual known as, uh, a street name was Monica. They would never give anybody their real name. Uh, for f- and this is common, guys, because um, as you want to go ahead and get more and more drugs, right? If they sold a kilo, it went well. At this point now, he's probably going to start doing multi-kilogram deals, right? Now, at this point, the person that's the source wants to meet you because now we're talking about significant amounts of drugs that they're responsible for getting to you, which they obviously have a plug back in Columbia that is going to be looking for some type of payment. So they need to start vetting you because now we're talking about serious amounts of drugs where we're going into the hundreds if not millions of dollars in in uh in value all right so this is typically once you start to meet the source and they're moving up the chain which is this is you know fantastic in a drug investigation so uh let's go ahead and continue on hope you guys are enjoying this please like the video because you guys aren't gonna get an insight like this anywhere else i fear they would be identified as with every meet backup agents cover epilito they recognize Monica as the woman seen at the house Eduardo entered after the first buy. When I was introduced to Monica, it just meant stepping up one, one extra step in a ladder. Eppolito must constantly maintain the charade. In character as Tony Romano, a member of the Mafia. He explains he has connections in customs and can move shipments through the ports. Agents spot a man watching the meat they realize he's the other person seen at the house. Special Agent Fernando Llanos. Colombians, as sophisticated as they were. And obviously this is very important because remember guys, so now he says, yo, we got a customs guy. Why? Well, because now they, they have a customs agent on the task force so they can go ahead and say, yo, we can facilitate the safe entry of drugs into the United States. Okay? <laughs> so that's huge to a Colombia drug trafficking organization. So let's keep playing. Uh, let's uh, let's keep going. Hope you guys are enjoying the goddamn video, enjoying the content. Like the video, you ain't going to get no more stuff like this anywhere else. Oftentimes we'd conduct counter surveillance. This was, you know, a standard operating procedure for them. So we were wary of individuals that could be looking out to, you know, for law enforcement. It's a preliminary meeting. No real decisions are made. But Monica appears interested. 
She wants to meet again to discuss details with her partner, Willie. When she and Eduardo leave, backup tails them to ID Monica's car. Later, in an effort to ID her, the task force has a uniformed officer conduct a routine traffic stop on the car. The driver is the man who watched the meet in the restaurant. The officer gets IDs on the pair. The man is Gustavo Valencia. And Monica's real name is Rocio Londano. <laughs> Investigators run the names and discover both are involved with Colombian cartels. The All right. So this is really cool that they did this. I've done this myself. So after a meet, right, and you don't know who the people are, you had an undercover, an informant meet, whatever, you could go ahead and do like a, like a T-stop, a traffic stop like this where, you know, hey, they were speeding, they, you know, break some, some you know, traffic law, whatever it may be, and you go ahead and you get them identified, right? You, oh, okay, you know, we'll let you off with a warning, whatever, but bam, at least now you know who the hell they are. Okay, this is also because now the person that they know was involved in the counter surveillance. Hey, this guy's kind of fishy. He's looking at this meeting a little too hard. What's going on? That's considered counter surveillance. Now he's the one that's actually driving. He was the one that drove the chick there. Now they got them both identified. They run their names through their databases and they're able to figure out, okay, these guys have links to Columbia cartels. We're, you know, we're on to something here, right? So now they got them fully identified. They know who the source is. Um, and now we can move the investigation forward, right? vicious worldwide leaders of the drug trade. With this information, the C-13 task force opens an official federal conspiracy case and brings in U.S. Customs from the reports. All right, so bam, now they bring in U.S. Customs agents, uh, which is huge. You need this, you know what I mean? So uh, so at this point, probably now that they got people identified, they got a kilo of cocaine, they probably went um, to the U.S. Attorney's Office, got the case officially accepted by the AUSAs, right? Because like I told you guys before, uh, federal prosecutors are extremely picky on the investigations that they pick and take. Um, and yeah, and, and they're probably gonna also have the case, which is why they brought US Customs Service in. Because, well, you know what? Actually, I already, I already know how this case began. C-13, so I already know it's gonna be an FBI case, right? FBI is involved with NYPD. They're working the case together. They wanna make the case OSADEF. To make a case OSADEF, you need another federal agency involved. Well, who's the best agency to bring in on a, you know, a, a drug trafficking investigation, especially that involves, import, involves importation? U.S. Customs Service. So, bang, they bring in the U.S. Customs Service. Now they can make this case OSADEF. Once you make the case OSADEF, you're going to go ahead and get a bunch of federal funding. You're going to get more prestige. The case is going to be um, prioritized in the U.S. Attorney's Office. It's going to be prioritized in your office when you say, I need agents for surveillance. And it's OSADEF case. Your supervisor is going to fight you know, to get you the guys that you need, the resources that you need, right? Remember, guys, in a big, busy field office like New York, everyone is doing cases. So you need to be able to set your case apart from everybody else and get the resources that you need. Cases are not cheap to do, you know? They're very difficult. They take time. They take surveillance. They take manpower, okay? And they take resources. So if you're able to get your case designated as an OCDF case, especially with the U.S. Attorney's Office, well, bam, now your office is going to prioritize that investigation. And now only... You have a force multiplier because you now have another federal agency, the U.S. Customs Service in this case, that has power, their own funding source, and they're going to be involved and they're going to help fund things as well. When I work with the DEA, 
There were times where I would fund drug buys, and then there were times they would fund drug buys. We bought guns. We had ATF involved. They would fund gun buys. So we were all working together, levering each other's assets, authorities, abilities, um, money, you know, for purchase of evidence, and we were all working together to make the case happen. So in this case, the U.S. Customs Service was a fantastic federal agency to bring in on an investigation like this because they have authorities and powers that you can't necessarily do as an FBI agent, okay? And NYPD is a state agency. They don't have the same authorities as well. So um, so this is basically more than likely how this case developed and became the way that it is now. Um, you know, we kind of jumped the gun a little bit by saying, hey, Customs Service is going to be involved in the investigation, but I already knew it as soon as they had a Customs agent speaking about the investigation, they were going to be involved. Um, but remember, guys, U.S. Customs Service no longer exists, right? This is pre-2003, after 9-11, and the Homeland Security, the formation of the Department of Homeland Security. U.S. Customs Service used to be under the Department of Treasury. Customs Like the fucking video, by the way! All right? You ain't going to get this kind of knowledge anywhere else. Agent Phil Spinelli confirms Valencia's street name is Willie. Willie had been identified as being at least a distant cousin of Pablo Escobar. Okay, bam. Now I know. When they ran the names, what happened was they probably got hits that U.S. Customs Service were looking at this couple as well. So they have a meeting. Hey, you guys are working this target. Yeah, we're working that target. What do you have on him? What do you have on him? You know what? We're working the same targets. Let's work together. And this is how I actually did a lot of good cases myself. I would look at it, I'd come, I'd identify a target, and then I would go ahead and I'd run his name through, you know, the law enforcement databases, and I'd see like an FBI record, or I'd see an ATF record, or I'd see a DEA record. Hey, we're looking at the, you know, you know, if if encountered contact special agent, blah, 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 from the DEA or contact special agent, blah. So I'd be like, okay, cool. I'd get that agent's contact information. I'd call them, I'd hit up my like our FBI liaison, or I'd hit up my D or DEA liaison, whatever, because obviously there's guys that assign to different task forces. I hit up a guy that I know would know someone over at that agency. Hey, can you put me in contact with this guy? Yeah, here's his number. Boom, I call him up. Hey, you know, this is special agent, blah, blah, blah. Amru, blah, 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 photo with, uh, you know, my already docs, you guys already doxed my name anyway. <laughs> I'm with Homeland Security Investigations out of Miami, Florida, or at the time, Laredo, Texas. I see that you have a record on this guy, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, would you like to meet sometime and talk about the case? Cool. Yeah, and if it's a case that they're actively working, they're going to want to meet with you because they're going to want to go ahead and identify that guy and figure out what the hell's going on. You know, you meet with the agent, right? If he's a cool guy, whatever, and they're like, you propose, hey, let's work this case together. Um, and then, bang, you work the case together. So Customs Service already had these guys on their radar, and they knew that one of the guys was a distant cousin of Pablo Escobar. So this is why the FBI was probably like, damn, we need to bring these guys involved into the investigation. They've already been looking at these dudes, Okay. And this is how law enforcement works a lot of the times uh, where everyone is doing their own investigations. You'll identify somebody and then you'll figure out another agency is working it. And then, bam, you get involved and you work together. Does that always go that way? No. Sometimes you'll get into fights where you don't want to work with that other agency or that other agent. And it's almost a race to see who can get him arrested faster, which kind of sucks that that happens sometimes. Um, but the best way to go is always you want to cooperate and work together because everybody wins at the end. Uh, but a lot of people want to be a lead case agent. They want to be able to kind of say, oh, it's our case, blah, blah, blah. And that's what happens, man. It's competitive, right? This is a part of the reason why 9-11 happened. You know, a lot of the agencies had segmented portions of information they didn't want to share. FBI had information. State Department had information. CIA had information. All these guys had information, but they didn't want to share. And then, bang, next thing you know, 9-11 happens, obviously. So that's what the worst, you know, that's the most egregious of what happens when information isn't shared, right? Obviously, this is a drug investigation, so it's the risk isn't as crazy. But um, but this happens, man. You know, the agencies are compartmentalized and everyone is competitive, right? A lot of anti-personalities in law enforcement, so this happens. Um, but luckily, they were able to work it out. Customs Service already had a case open, probably. FBI figures out these guys are um, drug traffickers. 
call each other. This guy's linked to Pablo Escobar. All right, cool. Let's work together. Let's OSIT after this case. Bang. Now they're up and rocking and rolling. Who was the head of the major cartel at that time? Escobar runs the Medellin cartel, the most violent gang in the history of Colombian drug trade. He offers bounties on the heads of Colombian police officers, maintaining power by killing whoever crosses him. Since Willie's related to Escobar, the C-13 investigation takes on new urgency. They might now be able to take the investigation all the way to the Colombian kingpin, Lieutenant Mike Garrity. Ideally, in any investigation, you take it from point A to point Z. And that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to get from the lowest level to the highest level. And once we met Willie with his connections, we figured we were right on target during the course of this investigation. While undercover, Epolito is constantly under the threat of death. He can never slip out of character. Tony Romano, the role he is playing, supposedly knows how the ports work, but Epolito doesn't. In order to maintain his disguise, customs agents must give the detective a crash course on international transportation. It was extremely important for, for Richie to be knowledgeable about the ports. You have to remember, what Richie is posing as, this is a wise guy, a member of a mafia family. He's also purporting to have connections down at the piers so he can guarantee the safe passage of the narcotics through customs. The only way he can convince Willie and moniker of this is to have enough knowledge of the inner workings of the pier so when he explains to them how he intends to carry out the caper it will be believable it will be true it will be accurate and this is very important man as an undercover you really need to be able to walk the walk and talk the talk and you know if you're gonna say i could facilitate the safe transportation of your drugs into the united states well that's a big fucking statement because when the Colombians move the drugs in, they're going to move thousands of kilograms into the United States, which is worth millions of dollars. So he needs to really be able to do what the hell he says he can do. And then also, luckily, you know, as a wise guy, right, or as a main member of the Mafia, which I'll do an episode for you guys on the Mafia as well. I don't think I've done a breakdown on La Cosa Nostra yet. So I will do one. And, and that's going to come into play because I, I know one of you guys want me to hit uh, Whitey Bulger. I'll do that. And that's going to, you know, have a pretty significant component with it to the Mafia. Um, but he needs to know this stuff. So he's remember guys, he's NYPD. NYPD has no knowledge of customs. Okay. Customs is a federal, um, it's federal laws. NYPD enforces New York state laws. So as NYPD detective, the customs agents need to bring him up to speed and let him know, Hey, this is how the, the peers work. This is how importation works. This is what duty is. This is a customs authority. This is what customs inspectors look for on the boats. This is my customs guy. We're going to be able to facilitate whatever. This is how the ceiling works, all that stuff. So the NYPD detective needs to get read up on all this so that he's looks, he, he's able to walk the walk. He's already talked to talk and walk the walk in real time because the Colombians are going to be moving in thousands of kilos on a freighter ship. Now, when it comes to the importance of, you know, walking to walk and talking to talk when it comes to undercover, I'll give you guys an example. Go down memory lane, right? When I had my, uh, when I had my case in, in Texas, right, that, that drug case that I told you about, it was a very big case. We were involved in farms, trafficking, we were involved in methamphetamine distribution, we were involved in everything in, the, in that criminal organization. But I had an undercover agent that worked uh, that case, right? Uh, I was a case agent and the undercover, and I'll never forget. We had a pre-briefing, and I only spoke to him on the phone. I had never met him. And, he, you know, he was an agent from another part of Texas that came over to Laredo. And uh, he came, and I'll never forget, when he showed up, 
I was like, what? Like, are you supposed to be here? And then it hit me. I was like, oh, wait. This is the fucking undercover. Because he looks so fucking dirty, bro. Like, he didn't look like an agent, like, at all. You know what I mean? Like, he looked like a fucking criminal, bro. That's but, the point. But that was the point. You know what I'm saying? He looked apart. He talked the talk. He walked the walk. He spoke that broken, you know, ghetto-ass Mexican Spanish. Orale, wey, que onda? Comandante. Like, all that shit, you know? So he sounded like a fucking, uh, uh, you know, Mexican drug trafficker. He looked like a Mexican drug trafficker. He wore the chains. He had the fucking boots. All that shit. Um, you know, so he looked like it. You know, he really, really looked like a like a crook. And when he went when he went and did the meetings, he spoke in a certain way. He conveyed himself a certain way. He would sit there and drink with the criminals. He built a lot of rapport, and they really trusted him, bro. So, um, it's very important that the undercover, right, is congruent to who he purports himself to be. Okay, so. Uh, so that was that was my example here, you know, because we were we were doing crazy shit. We were buying guns. We were buying methamphetamine. Uh, we were posing as uh, it, we were we were getting hitmen involved. <laughs> you know, I remember one of our crooks one time asked us for a connect on a murderer, and we were like, "Yeah, we know a guy," and we were able to put another undercover in play. But they called my guy. They called my undercover agent because he had built so much goddamn trust with them uh, that they said, "Yo, we need this fucking guy gone. Um, do you know someone that can make it happen?" And he was like, sure. So he calls me. He's like, yo, these guys called me. They fucking need this dude killed. Blah, blah, blah. What do you want to do? Because I'm the case agent. So I'm like, oh, fuck. So I go ahead. And I'm going to break all this down in more detail for y'all later on. But I basically go ahead and I'm like, yo, I need another <laughs> undercover agent. So I was able to get a buddy of mine from DEA to get me an undercover agent on short notice. Right? That looked like a fucking hitman. And we're able to make this shit happen. Uh, but, but yeah, man. That, that's the importance of having a good undercover agent. Where the criminals are going to call you for criminal activity because they trust your guys so much. All right. So uh, let's continue on here. Because the cartels are sophisticated enough to run their own background checks, the task force creates a full identity for the fictitious Tony Romano. Com this is very common. You need to do this for under, especially for big undercover cases like this, where you create a full name and everything for the guy. So if they ever run his name or his criminal history, it comes back and is real because some of these guys have dirty cops on the take. Complete with a long criminal record. Everyone working the case knows how important it is to hide Eppolito's true identity. They recall that in February 1985, decorated DEA Special Agent Enrique Camarena was ID'd as law enforcement by the Mexican drug gang he infiltrated. Gang members kidnapped him, tortured him, then stabbed him to death. The C-13 task force wires Eppolito to get incriminating... And yeah, that was crazy. Well, what happened with uh, Kiki Camarena? I met his uh, his family uh, when I was down in Laredo. Uh, they came and they did a, a talk. So, uh, yeah, man. I mean, that was... That's a perfect example of what goes bad when, you know, with uh, in an undercover operation. You know, he they tortured and killed him and it was terrible. So... And this is in 91, guys. So, obviously, that was still fresh in everybody's head. Conversations on tape... They are all aware that if Eppolito is discovered, it could be a death sentence. In previous meetings, no one has patted him down. But that could change. In this type of work, it's very easy to explain them finding a gun on you. I mean, that's part of doing business. You're going to have a gun on you. But it's extremely difficult to try to explain that little wire sticking up tape to your chest. Above all, 
Eppolito has to become his character fully to reduce suspicion. And I had to dress like the wise guys, I had to talk like the wise guys, uh, I had to have a flashy car, I had to have the jewelry. Soon, Eppolito meets Willie. As he moves up the organization ladder, the criminals become more savvy. It gets tougher to fool them. We're talking about people doing a substantial period of time in jail if caught. Therefore, everybody has a sixth sense. Their very existence depends on whether or not they have a sixth sense or an antenna that goes up. And they're there to question uh, Richie. They're there to make some determination. Is he somebody who is reliable, dependable, and can they do business with him? There they are. The task force listens in and covers Eppolito. And uh, they're basically your buddies, though. They don't want to see you get hurt. So it's it's good feeling knowing that there are guys there to back up. The task force slowly makes its way toward the heart of the cartel, knowing that at any moment, a single mistake could be deadly. Undercover detective Richard Eppolito, posing as a mafioso named Tony Romano, meets with Colombian drug cartel members. He's backed up by other members of the C-13 task force, some of whom act as mafia bodyguards. Which that's great cover because that would make sense for him as a wise guy, aka a made man in the, you know, La Cosa Nostra, you know, to be coming up with his own guys and making sure that everything is good because obviously they got to protect their dude as well. You know, he's coming and dressed up as a suit. Um, and you, you, again, this is the importance of congruency when you deal with other criminals, right? They're on high alert. They got their antennas up. They're making sure that they're not, you know, doing a deal with an undercover agent or an informant. So they want to make sure that everything seems uh, in place or not out of place. Eppolito tells suspects Monica and Willie that if they can get the cocaine to the New York docks, he can move it past customs into his secure warehouse for distribution. That is the magic words for Columbia Drug Traffic Organizations because obviously dealing with customs is their biggest adversary guy guys because that's the main interdicting agency that takes away their drugs okay so if they're able right if he can get it if they can get it to the united states he will facilitate the safe passage into the united states which is literally huge okay so you can see their eyes opening up like oh shit <laughs> customs agent phil spinelli that was very appealing to the colombians because they need somebody to pick up these containers full of narcotics at the piers. After the meeting, undercover agents follow the suspects. They note an interesting aspect of Colombian drug traffickers, according to Supervisory Special Agent Fernando Llanos. They took a low-key approach. Colombians did not drive around in uh, Mercedes-Benzes and, and Porsches and, and flashy, expensive vehicles. They didn't dress particularly in an expensive way they didn't particularly wear they didn't wear expensive jewelry a lot of gold and so forth. they made every effort to remain low-key and we saw that with with uh, Monica and Willie smart from additional sources investigators developed more intelligence on the couple it was believed that they had loads in the past entrusted to them that had been lost and therefore they lost favor they lost uh, money, 
and they were obligated to the cartels. When Willie and Monica lost the drugs, the cartels made one thing very clear. Make good on the debt or die. That pressure should help move the task force's case forward. Of course, the people that are indebted to the cartel are looking to get out of debt with the cartel and are willing to take more chances to hopefully make a bigger score to be able to get even. Through Monica and Willie, and this is true you never whenever you lose a load or whatever that's the worst thing that could happen because a lot of the times when you get these drugs guys you're getting them on consignment it's not like you're getting a million to, you have a million dollars to drop on a couple kilos of cocaine you're not going to have that they're going to give you the drugs a lot of the times if you're trusted they'll give you the drugs upfront on consignment for either free or a small fee then your job is to sell the drugs get rid of the drugs make that money back and then pay off your debt and obviously take your cut of profit so in this case they lost a couple of loads but since this guy's related to Pablo directly, they didn't get killed. You know what I'm saying? So that's actually very important. Investigators expand the investigation and pierce the cartel's secret world, according to Detective Epolito. One of the goals was to uh, establish enough probable cause to get court-ordered uh, wiretaps and further enhance the case, gather intelligence, uh, basically know what the bad guy's going to do before they actually do it. Because the couple discussed drug trafficking with Epolito, Investigators have no trouble getting warrants to tap their phones. The task force uses the taps to determine if the cartel believes Epolito is who he says he is. So this is huge, because when you're listening to wiretaps, you can actually get a whole other component of the investigation that you might not be able to get otherwise. So they're able to kind of see, foresee what the hell is going to happen, because now they're listening to them on the phones. They're seeing, okay, do they trust our guy? Are they scared of our guy? Do they doubt our guy? Whatever it may be, and it allows the team, right? the ability to be able to monitor the, the undercover meetings and to monitor the investigation based on how scared or how comfortable the criminals are. Okay, so it puts a little bit of ease on the extraction team because they know, all right, these guys are not really too scared of our UC, whatever it may be. Obviously, you're still on high alert, but it makes it, it creates a little bit of a, of a cushion of relief knowing that they do trust the undercover to some degree. Okay, and obviously on these phone calls, which they don't know are tapped, you're going to be able to get the real deal of the behind the scenes of what the hell the criminals actually think. So this is actually fantastic that they're wiretapping while simultaneously running an undercover operation, which is ideally what you want to do. You want to be up on phones. You want to have undercover in. You want to have informants in. You want to have uh, different prongs into the organization so that you can get more intel so you know how to move correctly. Okay. Free talking on the phones. They would discuss a lot of their arrangements, uh, what they had in mind, what they wanted to do. Uh, the big mafioso that they met. On tape, Monica and Willie tell their cartel contacts that Tony Romano is a safe bet. That's good shit. We could listen to their calls they were making to Colombia, discussing the meeting they just had with him, and you know we were able to gather insight that you would not be able to, to gather otherwise into what their thinking was. The cartel has taken the bait and is ready for the next step. They send another higher associate to meet with the mafioso. It's good stuff. There's also a female that came into the picture named Magola. She was uh, very attractive, uh, Colombian national. Uh, she was the niece of uh, a notorious drug dealer out there who they used to refer to as uh, Ivan the Terrible. He was responsible for the deaths of approximately uh, 19 national police officers. The task force knows Ivan the Terrible specializes in killing cops. 
usually in a torture chamber he had built at his compound in Bogota, Colombia. Eppolito must continue playing his role and needs to convince Magola that he's a mafia wise guy or risk being killed. And he's the perfect cop to do it. He grew up with some, uh, quote, mob people. He knew how they acted. Uh, he had the looks. He knew the way to, to act. He knew the way to dress. And you give uh, Richie a little bit of leeway. You give him a script and he could play the role to a T. And he was absolutely excellent in playing his role. Eppolito notices one of Magola's associates has a gun Are you nervous? and must decide whether to call for help from backup. He takes the risk and stays in character. He doesn't want to blow the case. And you'll be in, you know, situations like this a lot of times as an undercover where it's like, you know, you're dealing with armed criminals. What are you going to do? But obviously... Um, they're listening to the wiretaps, right? They know that they trust him. They know that they that he's he's a higher level mafioso. So he knows, okay, if they're having their conversations and they're talking highly of me on the phone, and I'm even in this meeting in the first place, they clearly trust me. Okay, so he's able to take that, you know, educated risk. Let's continue on. How do you, how are you like this, by the way, Dolphins? I love it. It's good stuff. Yeah, it's great stuff, actually. Okay. Like, I'm learning a lot between, like, how... Yeah, I see you taking notes over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm taking notes. Yeah. Right. It's very interesting. Cool, cool, cool. Backup knows what to do if anyone gets suspicious of them. Is that possibly somebody is making us? What we would do is just probably step a little bit further back from the set. So they would think that, to a certain extent, they are seeing ghosts, where, in fact, there were no ghosts. In the end, it appears Magola believes Tony Romano can provide a safe route for drug running. Slowly, the task force makes its way deeper into the cartel. <laughs> we were piecemealed individuals. First we met Eduardo, then we met Monica, then we went, met Willie, then it was Margolis. They kept introducing different uh, people. The way it works, those people would report back to the people back in Colombia and they'd say what's going on. It seems to be going well. But Eppolito can never let down his guard. He is in constant danger. If the cartel suspects anything, they could send assassins and hit Eppolito at any time, not just at a meeting. They could wait, get you at a later time, let you think everything's okay next time you show up. You get one in the back of the head. <laughs> that boy was about to get fucking clapped. <laughs> God, that ankle, that ankle holster, he was ready to go, man. He Yo. had that joy. He was about to pull that boy boy out and be like, hey, what, what, what the? You know what I'm saying? Just be ready for that shit. He was ready, okay? Yeah, he was ready. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of agents carried uh their guns on their ankles, guys. I personally never ankle carry, I think it's fucking trash. Ain't it heavy on your ankles when you walk? It kind of is. I, it's the most. It's actually the most comfortable way to carry your gun. Mo, oh. mo, a lot of agents carry their guns on their foot. Yeah, okay. I think it's stupid, but a lot of them do. Um, yeah, I, I I carry appendix. I think that's the best way to carry. But okay. everyone is different. True. But that boy is about to get clapped for having a <laughs> cell phone, man. It was the fact that he was <laughs> acting like he was tying his shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel very uppity, uh, very alert. 
uh, it's just uh, natural adrenaline, I guess, that kicks in. Uh, there's a bit of excitement involved. It's challenging. Uh, it's dangerous. Any mistake could mean another murder of a dedicated law enforcement officer. New York investigators try to infiltrate Pablo Escobar's Medellin drug cartel and dismantle it. As the case builds, the C-13 task force puts more resources into it, including an office for undercover detective Richard Eppolito's mafia character. We just had an undercover office in uh, Floral Park, Queens. And uh, it was wired for both video and uh, audio to document meets and gather evidence. It's the best place. And, and this is the beauty of having, you know, OSADEF funds. You're able to get undercover operations going like this, where you can have undercover storefront, an undercover um, office, an undercover house, whatever, you know, wired up with, with cameras uh, and audio equipment, undercover agents that actually work it. So what they're doing is they're building more congruency to this mafioso where they can have safe meetings, right? And everything. And he has a goddamn secretary even in there, okay? Who's an undercover agent as well, right? Or an undercover probably for NYPD or maybe FBI, whatever it may be, because he's a lead uh, undercover operative in this thing. So, you know, this is the beauty of having OSADEF funds, guys, okay? From a, a case, from a former case agent perspective, you get the money to do this type of stuff when you have big cases, all right? And the fact that they were able to articulate, yo, one of the people involved in this drug investigation was a cousin of Pablo Escobar, Bam. The U.S. Attorney's Office, they'll give you whatever the fuck you want, you know, and, and they're not the ones that fund it, but I mean, they're going to give you whatever resources from a prosecutorial standpoint to make it happen. And then the agency, whether it was the FBI, U.S. Customs Service, whatever, they all have money to go ahead and make this happen. And I can speak about this, too. Right. When I was uh, an agent, right, the U.S. Customs Service used to have undercover operations where they got a fuck ton of money to be able to do stuff like this. So I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't actually U.S. Customs Service that funded this undercover house okay or this undercover office excuse me that they were able to use to go ahead and make these things happen because um when you have uh undercover situations like this the u.s Customs service used to have a nice pool of money that they can pull from that they can go ahead and make these operations happen all right so there's like the video man you're gonna get insider stuff like this anymore and this is you know obviously this is uh back in the 90s right the u.s Customs service doesn't exist anymore so it's not like this classified info or whatever but yeah guys um, U.S. Customs definitely had uh, good pools of money to be able to do UC operations just like this, to have undercover fronts and everything. Place for monitored meetings, according to Lieutenant Mike Garrity. We were able to bring the people there. We were able to record the conversations. We were able to videotape uh, every one of these conversations. When Monica and Willie show up to the office for a meeting, they're watched the entire time. FBI Special Agent Mary Setzer acts as Eppolito's receptionist. We met in the office approximately two or three Bam, so the FBI UC involved as well. ...times a month. My responsibilities were to answer the door when the subjects arrived, announce them to the undercover, and then usher them into the office. She's there for protection, but she's also part of the act. Richie frequently tried to ease the tension by making fake phone calls to me from the office during his meetings. 
he would pick up the telephone and say, make sure that order arrives tomorrow. Get that fax out. It's all done to convince the cartel members the detective is actually Tony Romano. See, this is what I'm saying, baby. Attention to detail, man. This is fantastic undercover work here, you know, because they think they're in a natural office setting where he's running an office, he's running a business, whatever. Obviously, he's a criminal as well, but he has a secretary. She's answering phone calls. Hey, bitch, go fax this stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He's probably freaking out on the phone a little bit like, hey, what the fuck? You know, this shit isn't done. Get this shit next week, blah, blah, blah. This is all stuff to create an image that's going to be very important. Okay, guys, little details like this make cases, all right? So this is great stuff. What, what's your thoughts on this, uh, Dollface? Boy, you got to be a full, like, an uh, actor. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever done, like, something like that? Like, yeah. you had to act? Yeah, no, no. me, me myself, no. I was always a case agent. Like, I didn't want to do undercover work. Fuck that shit. You oh, know? okay. So when you're the case agent, you're the one dictating the case, and you, you're the one operate, like running the case like to do stuff like this. Okay. So I, gotcha. I've done it before where I've had like you undercover meetings. Yeah, I've okay. organized. Yeah, yeah. So like all these people, all these agents involved that you guys are seeing. Um, so the fat guy, he's, he's, he was an undercover agent, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the woman, obviously, she was another undercover agent. Uh, the FBI guy, the Hispanic guy, mm -hmm. he's a, he was a supervisor. Um, and then you got the customs agent who was probably the case agent on the case because the way he's speaking you could tell how he's extremely detailed as far as like speaking about oh yeah we need to go ahead and facilitate the drugs in whatever so the customs agent was probably the, the, the customs guy was probably the case agent on the um on the uh on the custom side because you have to have a case agent for each agency right and then that lieutenant that's speaking from nypd he was probably the case officer or case detective for the NYPD because every one of these agencies has to have a case open with their own respective agency. Gotcha. So okay. everybody played a role. Everyone played a role and everyone has their own case cases open, uh, right, for their own respective agency, but they're all, you know, it's all the same investigation. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then I'm trying to figure out who the FBI case agent was uh, in this case. I mean, uh, it might have been that lieutenant because that lieutenant probably was a task force officer with the FBI. And a task force officer is basically the same as like having a special agent assigned. He was probably assigned to that C-13-11 squad. He was a task force officer, uh, which means he is able to work state cases with the NYPD and also do federal investigations with the FBI. So that lieutenant more than likely was probably the FBI case agent. And then the customs agent that you guys saw before that was speaking, he was probably the customs uh, case agent. And then you have the UCs, and then you had the supervisors, so, which is great because now you have pretty much all, main, all the main people involved in the investigation. But more than likely, th those two NYPD guys mm -hmm. are task force officers with the FBI. I, I'm willing to bet they, they were task force officers in that C-1311 squad, probably a part of um, the Safe Streets Task Force, which is very common to have your state and locals involved in it. Guys, like the video. No one else is going to break down these cases to this level of detail and have this kind of insider information to give you guys the real deal on how these investigations work. So like the video. You have to establish credibility with these people. If you say who you are somebody, you have to show them, you have to prove it. So we set up this operation to bring them there and put them at ease. Uh, plus it served as a, a meeting place. It was out of the view of the public. They felt secure, they felt safe. It's a slow process as the task force orchestrates a complex fraud against wary adversaries. Supervisory Special Agent Fernando Llanos. These were savvy people. Yeah, so I think he was the supervisor over this investigation. 
You okay. know, these were people that were involved in drug trafficking for many years in Colombia and elsewhere outside of Colombia in furtherance of the cartels. Um, so he's the one actually, like this guy, supervisor, right? They're, they don't carry the case. They don't run the case. They're the ones making sure that upper management knows what's going on. They're the ones securing funding. They're the ones securing personnel. They're the ones securing funds. They're the ones helping the case uh, get the steam it needs to be pushed, you know? So that's the, that's what a good supervisor does. Gotcha. Major worldwide distribution effort. Throughout the whole investigation, we were always concerned that, you know, there would be a slip up, uh, that something uh, inappropriate uh, would be said, or perhaps that surveillances would be, would be made uh, that would give the whole thing up. If the cartel ever suspects anything, they would likely kill Epolito and his informant. On rare days off, Eppolito needs a reason he can't meet Monica and Willie. He tells them he often goes to Atlantic City to tend to the mafia business there. Eventually, Monica and Willie ask to see the Atlantic City operation. Oh. It's time to put up or shut up, baby. Okay? So this is common as undercover, right? In times where you're not available to deal with the criminal organization, right? Because obviously, you're a full-fledged criminal now. You're deep cover, right? Days that you're not able to meet with them, what do you say? Oh, well, you know, you're not going to tell them, I'm hanging out with my family and kids. Today's my day off from NYPD. No, you're not going to fucking say that shit. Stupid. You're going to say, yo, uh, you know, I have another criminal or uh, opera. I got another operation I got going on. In this case, right, that would make sense. As a mafia guy, we know that the mafia ran New York, New York, New Jersey, et cetera, and Atlantic City isn't that far from New, York, from New York City. And it's a huge gambling hub. So it would make sense, right, again, going back to that congruency, it would make sense that the mafia would have their tentacles into the gambling uh, involved in Atlantic City, okay? Um, so they want to obviously see the operation there, right? What are you going to do? Are you going to tell them, no, you guys can't see it or whatever, or fuck that shit? No, we want to come to Atlantic City. Because what's going to happen is they didn't, they're not going to say, we want to see your, your organization or your criminal activity going on in Atlantic City. No, they're going to say some bullshit like, yo, we're going to be going, going to Atlantic City. I know that you work there, whatever. Can you link up with us some sometime? So to build rapport and create more um, how do I say this? Social proof or criminal social proof in this this case. Mm -hmm. He's gonna go ahead and facilitate this meeting, all right? Because it's almost like a girl shit testing you. Same exact thing. Yo, uh, you know we're gonna be in Atlantic City. We'd love to meet with you there. Blah blah blah. Translation. We still need a little bit more proof that you are who you say you are. So he sees he's able to read through it between the lines and make this shit happen. And you guys are gonna see right now. I really like how they did this. Epolito's got a problem. He has no real business in Atlantic City. The team scrambles to create an elaborate ruse that will trick the drug dealers. Took them all to Atlantic City. That's another credibility thing. They wanted to see where I spent my weekends, where I hung out. So we took them to the casinos. The uh, Jersey State Police were very instrumental on setting up uh, uh, the casinos where I could, you know, Walking like I was a big shot, uh, we could comp them. We got them rooms. Uh, you know, we dined like kings uh, and queens. Back up. Shots in New Jersey State Police for making that shit happen. <laughs> that was lit. This, this Atlantic City uh, the vacation is brought to you by the New Jersey State Police. Welcome, Columbia drug traffickers. That was lit. <laughs> is all around. The entire undercover operation is carefully scripted and nothing is left to chance. 
The task force wants the cartels to see everything they need to see to believe Eppolito is a mafioso. They even send in an undercover officer to act as a mafia captain and ask the informant for a meeting with Eppolito. The informant talked to Richie. Richie walked away, but in clear view of the other participants. The other individual is prearranged, threw his arms around Richie, greeted him, kissed him on both cheeks, and he handed him an envelope with a wad of money. Kissing and both cheeks, guys, is a mafia thing that they do. You know, uh, the Omerta code of silence, okay, is what they do uh, typically during their meetings. So, mm. it, it got congruency, baby. And Richie sent them on his way, walked back to the table, pulled out the wad of money in the envelope, leaped through it, put his back, and Richie complained that he's always working. Even in Atlantic City, he can't catch a break. And these people were totally impressed with this. Bam. Gotcha, bitch. Oh, God. This is this is great undercover work, man. Great, 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 great stuff. But the cartel needs more convincing. They send an interrogator to meet with Abolito. His street name is Sammy, and he specializes in finding undercover cops. Sammy was somebody. He was a wild card that uh, was introduced to the investigation. He was, uh, you know, an enforcer, somebody that uh, apparently, you know, uh, was capable of, you know, determining whether somebody uh, was, uh, you know, a law enforcement officer, obviously. The room is fully wired, and agents watch from an office in the hotel. In touch with... This is nerve-wracking shit right here, man. ...backup stationed right. near the room. They must protect Eppolito. But they can't move too soon. I have to make a decision basically uh, in a split second. All right, so I'm pretty confident that this guy right here was probably the NYPD uh, case detective, the guy that ran the case on the NYPD side, um, or the case agent in this in this case because he was assigned to the FBI C-13 squad um, as a task force officer, which I've explained what task force officers are before if you guys look at the clips videos. Um, but yeah. Uh, basically, he's deputized under federal authority to work under the auspice of the FBI and can do federal investigations as well as still have his NYPD authority to do state investigations as well. Um, but he's a full-fledged a federal agent, all right, uh, with FBI. They get a lot of times TFOs get uh, their agency badge, and then they also have the federal agency badge as well. So, like DEA, for example, their task force officers have a DEA badge, but it's silver, versus the the special agents have a golden badge. So, FBI probably the same thing. Task force officers have um an fbi badge but it probably might be silver or look a little bit different but they have fbi credentials so that if they need to travel interstate whatever they can go ahead and fly arm do whatever they need to do they could travel interstate to do investigations they have all the same authorities that an fbi agent will have uh so yep and if you make the wrong decision in a case like this let's say to move in you just you could blow and real quick, undercovers typically don't carry the cases. The undercovers are the undercover agent. So he's involved. Because you're, when you're a deep cover, you don't have time to sit there and write a million reports and run the case and get funding and all. No, hell no. That's a case agent's job. So a lot of time, undercovers typically don't run their own investigations. They're the undercover, and then there's a case agent that runs the case. So I'm willing to bet that this guy was a case agent on the NYPD. The supervisor was involved. Obviously, you got Jermaine UC, who's the star of the show. And then you got your U.S. Customs agent who, you know, when he comes up, I'll remind you guys who he is. Uh, on, on their side that also carried the, the case on the custom side. Maybe about a year's worth of investigation. Now, if you move too slow, you could lose an undercover. 
Sammy starts the interrogation. I didn't pat him at the door to see if he was armed or not, but you know, a lot of these guys are armed and you gotta be careful. And, uh, you know, I had to make sure I come up with the right answers because uh, if we had any inclination that I was uh, either a bad guy looking to rip him off or uh, law enforcement, I mean, God knows what might have happened. Epolito knows backup is there, but it's still a tense situation. There's always a signal that's. Uh, set up between you and the backups in case something goes wrong or a code word. Uh, That's the distress signal I was telling you guys about before. Distress signal or a takedown code if you're going to do a takedown. In this case, it's just a UC meeting, so it'll just be a distress code. And, you know, you let loose with the signal or the code word, they just take the whole thing down. Several times, Sammy hints that he thinks Epolito's trying to trick them. We were extremely close there. We could have got in there in a couple of seconds, but those couple of seconds could have meant life or death. Uh, so it is a gut-wrenching uh, situation. As Sammy continues to press Epolito, agents fear that one wrong answer could destroy the entire investigation, and Detective Epolito would be killed. Undercover Detective Richard Epolito faces off against an interrogator from Pablo Escobar's drug cartel. A man known only as Sammy. He demands details of Epolito's past crimes to prove he really is a mafioso. Agents watch the meet, ready to send in backup. At some point during the interrogation process, I, I felt I had to put a stop to it before uh, either I said something that I couldn't back or the informant. Oh shit, we're at the moment of truth. Let's see what happens. <laughs> and I basically stood up. I told him, I says, listen. I says, do you really expect me to tell you everything I've done? Do you expect me to tell you the people I've killed? The people I've done drugs, dealt drugs with? I says, for all I know, you could be a cop, you could be an agent. I says, I told you what I'm gonna tell you. The detective takes a risk in character as Tony Romano, oh, demanding shit. more respect. I says, here's my hand. Either you feel comfortable with me, or it's a pleasure meeting you, and I'll take my business elsewhere. The tension rises. And he got all upset. He walked off to the side, talking to them. There was some hollering and screaming in Spanish, of course, which I didn't understand. So this is a tense moment here, guys. We don't know what the fuck is going to happen. Let's see. Sammy and the others might be planning something violent, but Epolito can't back down now. You can't show that you're uh, intimidated or afraid of them. I mean, that's the worst thing. You gotta come Facts. on uh, just as strong or even stronger than they do at times. Facts. Detective Mike Garrity is seconds away, but seconds might be too late. We were getting ready to move in, but Richie handled it excellent. He was able to get out of it, that's the importance of a good UC. Besides, Epolito is the real thing. He came back, smiled, shook my hand, and said, we'll be doing business. Once again, the detective has conned the criminals. Customs agent Phil's... And this goes to show the extreme measures that these guys are taking, man. This is sophisticated criminal activity right here, getting inter you know, meeting different, you know, people in the organization, getting a goddamn interrogator involved. This is wild stuff right here, man. Let's keep going. Benelli. 
Oh, uh, by the way, guys, like the video, subscribe to the channel, because you ain't going to get breakdowns like this anywhere else. I know I sound like a broken record, but sometimes I got to give people a reminder of the value that you guys are getting on this channel that you're not going to find anywhere else, man. So all I ask is that you like the video, subscribe, and uh, yeah, what are your thoughts so far, Dollface, after this crazy interaction? Um... <laughs> <laughs> I ain't gonna lie, I kind of got scared. I'm like, dang. But I'm like, he's alive talking about it, so he did survive it. Okay, fair enough. So okay. And um, the guy Sammy, he looked like um the guy off of Fast and Furious. <laughs> Vin Diesel. Yes. Oh man. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so it's all part of being an undercover. It's all part of being able to act calmly under pressure. And Richie, of course, being the pro he is, handled it very well. All right, that is the customs case agent right there. Okay, guys. Um, I could tell just from the way that he's speaking and everything. They brought him in for this documentary. He was the case agent on the customs side. Well, before the drug traffickers leave Atlantic City, Sammy decides to test the informant, according to Supervisory Special Agent Fernando Llanos. All of the subjects asked uh, the source to, to go to one of their rooms to talk to him. And uh, fortunately, we had an adjacent room uh, and we're able to listen in to, to the conversation. So now they're going to grow the informant. The informant is a civilian, not law enforcement, and might not hold up to the pressure of the interrogation. Agents watch as Sammy tries to get the informant to double cross Tony Romano. He pushes hard. Got a little heated at times. Uh, the backup teams thought they were going to have to go crashing through the door and rescue the informant and just basically take the case down at that point. It's a big case, but not worth a man's life. You have to take calculated risks, and this was another instance where we needed to do that. You know, uh, can we respond quickly enough? Can we get into the room if this man whips out a gun? you know, or a knife and puts it to our source's throat. The informant refuses to betray the powerful mafioso. He says, his people will kill me quicker than that. He says, I could never do anything to betray him or the family. And when he said that, they, they respected him. And uh, they saw he wasn't going to betray me. So they felt, I guess they felt he had a certain amount of integrity. And uh, he wouldn't be that much of a risk factor for them as well. And uh, they broke open a bottle of champagne in the room. And they celebrated. And... Another possible crisis averted. Goddamn racism. It's good. They break open a bottle of champagne with him, but they didn't do that with Tony Romano. Goddamn it. What no. the hell? Because <laughs> that's yeah, the informant was probably Colombian too. He was like, "Nah, Brian Snitcher." They're like, "Ah, oh, you know right. what, bro? Let's pop a bottle of champagne. You a real one, right?" With the boy, with that Italian guy. Fuck him. Nah, nah. Fuck Tony. But hey, my man, we we could rock with you though. Let's break up some champagne. He don't speak our language. Fuck him. <laughs> that was hilarious. It could have been the end of the investigation, or the end, of the end of the informant if they had decided to kill him. It seems like endless meetings. But this level of caution is how the cartels grew so powerful. You're dealing with formidable adversaries. I mean, there was a lot of negotiations before we got down to the um, the fine movements of getting the drugs from Colombia over to here. As the investigation deepens, the next step up the ladder is Hernando Sanchez Aneo, a high-level cartel member. 
He suggests going beyond a single shipment and opening a new drug pipeline into the U.S. A marriage of the Colombian cartels and the American mafia. We gave them the opportunity to move a product without law, uh, law enforcement interceding from the pier to one of our warehouses. So in effect, what we did, we provided one-stop shopping for this organization, and they loved it. The addition of Hernando means the C-13 task force is moving deeper into Escobar's cartel. Shit's about to get real, man. Oh, boy. It was a feather in our cap to get him involved in this particular thing, and more and more we, we, we knew we were getting closer and closer to the source. With a warrant, investigators tap Hernando's phones. To protect Epolito, they route calls through a secure Atlantic City phone number to his New York home. During one call, Hernando asks Epolito to come to Colombia with him to inspect a cocaine shipment. It's too dangerous for Epolito to go. Yeah, that's a... Nope. No, thank you. Fuck no. It would be like walking into the lion's den. And the task force would be unable to protect him. But if he backs out, the cartel may grow suspicious and kill him. Undercover detective Richard Epolito was working to bring down the powerful Medellin drug cartel. Hernando Sanchez Aneo wants him to accompany him to Colombia to inspect a cocaine shipment. The detective must get out of the trip. It's too dangerous. His team could not protect him on foreign soil. Thinking quickly, he tells Hernando he can't leave his mob business unattended and hopes he doesn't suspect anything. I mean, one of two things could happen. They could just walk away from you and never have anything to do with you again. Or depending on how far you are into their group or organization, how much you do know, you, I mean, your life could be at risk. Apolito gets a break. Hernando falls for the story. The task force continues to follow the suspects to ID more associates. And they trust him because he they showed he showed the Atlantic City operation. You know what I mean? So it's not like he's like running around like it's Cap. Like yo, you guys see the the thing that I got going on in Atlantic City? These dudes are paying me while I'm having dinner, bro. I'm busy as hell. I can't come out there. What the hell's wrong with y'all? So it makes sense, right? Right. Investigators watch as Hernando meets with a man identified as Mauro Trujillo, a high-level cartel member who's been wanted by the DEA for narcotics trafficking and money laundering. Oh shit. So this is great. They're on surveillance and they identify another co-conspirator that's also that's wanted by the DEA, you know? So this is big stuff. Agents want to grab him, but they don't want to blow the current investigation, so they wait. That sucks. <laughs> you got your guy, he's wanted, he's there, but if you grab him up, you already know what time it is, so, yep. As Epolito gets deeper into the deadly cartel, the danger increases. There's a higher risk factor. Uh, you know, some nights I didn't go home. Uh, if I did go home, I would have to uh, do it in such a way where I made sure I wasn't being followed. Finally, as the new year passes, Epolito learns the shipment is on its way. But there's a change of plans. Instead of the cocaine, 
Hernando says they're sending a test load. Nine and a half tons of marijuana. Damn. Oh, man. That's a lot. Now, as a former case agent that did drug aid cases, that is not what you want to hear, man. And this is common that they do this stupid shit where there's supposed to be a higher level drug and then they tell you right before it's going to be weed. And this is common that drug organizations do this. They're not going to ship their main drug, a.k.a. cocaine, because cocaine is fairly expensive, guys. They're going to ship something a lot cheaper like marijuana or some bullshit, okay? But especially when you deal with cocaine, this almost always happens. I can tell you from a case agent perspective, they're going to deal with either very small quantities or it's weed. And this is just what happens. So you can obviously see the reaction on the, on the undercover agent's face here. Obviously, this is just a reenactment, but I would have the same goddamn reaction. I'd be pissed too. So... Uh, let's see how they react to this uh, curveball. In character is Tony Romano. The detective acts upset at the change. But it's a big load. And would be the evidence they need to bring the operation to a close. It was a heck of a test load. Normally, we hadn't seen anything like that. Test loads were like one or two kilos. See if it gets seized, goes out to the street, and let's see what happens. The task force can't let that amount of drugs on the street. When the load arrives at the New York docks, undercover investigators transport it directly to Eppolito's warehouse. The investigators need to check the container's contents. But there's a seal on its door to ensure no one has opened it. All right, so this is tricky. There's a seal on it, guys, which in the customs world, um, you, don't, you want that seal to be intact because it shows that no one else opened it. Okay, now drug organizations are obviously very sophisticated at getting drugs into it without necessarily breaking a seal or whatever it may be. But for a drug organization, after they smuggle it in, they need to be able to make sure that that seal is still open. It's a very big indicator that no one's tampered with it. Okay, so uh, let's see how, this, how they go around this. It's a common practice in international shipping. Agents need to find a way to get inside and keep the seal intact. U.S. Customs Agent Phil Spinelli. Uh, what they were able to do is to detach the door without breaking the seal. Bam. At first, it looks like a normal shipment of clothing. Stashed behind the shirts, marijuana. Literally tons of it. Bam. We recovered somewhere in the neighborhood of about 272. Uh, cartons were crates containing 19,000 pounds of marijuana valued in excess of 21, 22 million dollars. Holy shit, 19,000 pounds of fucking weed? But you see how much it's worth? Yeah, 20 million dollars. Damn! <laughs> I guess that's one hell of a Tesla. You know why they sent that much though? They were going to send thousands of kilos of cocaine. But that was the test, right? That, that was their test in weed, yeah. But oh. the fact that they were able to send that much weed over tells me that they were prepared to send, literally, if they had, like, let's say they let this weed walk, which they never would, but let's say this weed, like, had safely facilitated through, they would have sent thousands of kilos of weed, of, of cocaine after this. And imagine how much that will cost. That would have been even more. Oh that would have been even more, because weed is not nearly, weed isn't. As expensive as, as expensive as cocaine. Cocaine is by far the most expensive drug. Right. So uh, this is fucking hilarious. Uh, so yeah, these guys, uh, these this organization just fucked themselves. But uh, yeah, nineteen thousand pounds plus were twenty uh, twenty two million dollars. And twenty two million dollars in the nineties, guys. 
is the equivalent. Just so you, let, let's play with the inflation thing right quick. Twenty-two million dollars in nineteen ninety-one. That's a lot of money. Uh, inflation calculator. Let's have some fun with this bad boy. Inflation calculator, right by year. Here it is. All right, let's pull this bad boy up real fast. Um, boom. So, let's say if in nineteen ninety-one, mm -hmm. okay, twenty-two. That's twenty-two uh, hundred. It's twenty-two thousand, two hundred twenty thousand, two point two million. That should be it. <laughs> they can't even give it to me. If in nineteen ninety-one entry. Oh, shit, got you put it. Yeah, put it in the wrong place. My bad, guys. Yeah, the year go there. Yeah. Bam. Uh huh. Twenty twenty. Twenty-two million. Then uh, nineteen ninety-one. Uh, Today, 2022, right? Yep, calculate. Okay. That'd be $47 million uh, today. Damn. Almost 50 mil. Fucking wild. That is ridiculous. That's and how that's much, just weed. That's just weed, bro. That's how much weed these fucking guys smuggled in. I don't want to know how much cocaine yeah. it's going to cost. They're definitely dealing with a major cartel. It's not easy to put together nine and a half tons of marijuana. These... <laughs> People had the resources to do all this. These were bad guys, uh, major violators. They, uh, you know, they plagued this country with this stuff. And, uh, you know, they just needed to be taken down and bring a halt to their operation. And guys, keep in mind, in 1991, marijuana was still highly fucking illegal all across the board, okay? It wasn't even legalized in states yet at this point. For prosecution, the C-13 task force needs the suspects to complete the transaction and accept the shipment. Eppolito invites them to the warehouse. And of course there was video and uh, you know, surveillance equipment in place. We uh, had one of the, my so-called one of my workers, uh, come with a big bolt cutter and cut the seal on the back of the uh, container. And I handed them the seal, I said, here's a souvenir feel. And they could see that the load was sealed. It wasn't tampered with. It got here. That's big. Piece. And I uh, happened to have an Italian switchblade on me, by the way. I cut it open, and uh, they examined it, and they were happy. They saw it was the stuff they had sent over, and uh, they also wanted to take some back with them. But Eppolito can't let the drugs hit the street. Here we go and uses the cartel's unplanned switch from cocaine to marijuana to his advantage. Okay, now we switch it up on them and see what he does here. It's very smart what he's about to do. I said, uh, now you screwed me, and, you know, this is basically how it's going to go. You're going to do what I tell you to do. I want those 5,000 kilos here. When I get my drugs... Then you get your marijuana. Bam. He was supposed to get that, those 5,000 kilos of coke, and you guys put him in a bad spot and sent him fucking weed. So now he's going to hold the weed until the cocaine comes. Now, let's see what happens. The suspects panic. They are desperate to take control of the drugs. Shockingly desperate. Monica actually offered up her baby to me as a form of collateral and good trust. It's a stunning move no one expects. Offered her fucking baby. <laughs> Holy shit. But that goes to show 
how crazy this situation was for them. Fear comes across when you hear stories like that. The reason being is, is that if she's willing to give her child up to this unknown criminal figure, what would she have done to myself or any member of the investigative team if in fact she found out we were law enforcement or if in fact she found out that Richie in reality was an undercover police detective? It would have been fucking... Yeah. Mind you, this is $22 million worth of weed here. They would have gutted Since them. a couple of chills up your spine. Epolito stands firm. He will not release the marijuana until the cocaine he ordered comes through. The cartel members finally... Now, from a prosecution standpoint, this is fantastic because now you've established that it is their weed. They're obviously very vested in it. I mean, hell, that's the best evidence you can get right there. One of the defendants literally would offer her baby <laughs> to get the drugs. Doesn't get any fucking better than that. They're looking at the FBI and the Customs Service right now. They're just like, yeah, just shaking, rubbing their hands like Birdman right now, man. They agree and plan to meet later. Shit. While C-13 plans arrests, Epolito faces increased pressure from angry cartel members. No, I can't do that. They've got pretty, pretty, uh, you know, heated. Uh, during these latter meetings because they kept pressuring him to release the drugs, you know, to release of some course, of the marijuana. Of course, they're fucking pissed. They, then, they could then sell it. On February 3rd, 1993, more than a year after the investigation began, the arrest plans are finalized. The task force moves in. They start with Willie and Monica at Apolito's office. By this time, the pair suspects nothing. Oh shit. They were bewildered. They didn't know what was going on. Uh, <laughs> the guys coming with shotguns, guns out, both professed on. Then, the man they knew as Tony Romano oh, shit. emerges. You know, I went out there to, uh, to speak to them and try to get them to cooperate. And that's when you let them know. That's when the undercover comes out. That's when they're like, fuck. <laughs> that's when they want to cooperate like that's why he went out there to try to get them to cooperate because it's like you know if you if they think okay well tony's gonna get arrested too we'll be able to beat this case but then if tony romano comes out and he's like nah bruh i was a part of the police that's when they're just like you better fucking start talking baby i thomas you know who i am I'm, I'm the police i guess they felt betrayed and then i had deceived them which i did in the interest of justice and uh, Willie actually looked at me with tears in his eyes and he says uh, how could you do this to me I said, oh, oh shit he says you come into this country you bring this stuff you destroy our people he's just crying how could you betray me and my Colombian drug trafficking organization after we try to press you for months and interrogate you and everything else man how fucking dare you man how dare you oh our youth I said I'm a police officer. I'm a detective. He says, I'm here to uphold the law. He says, you broke the law. He said, you people are under arrest. And I was in. I walked out of the room. FBI agents, FBI agents. Within 24 hours, C-13 arrests Hernando and six other co-conspirators. Magola is never... Did they just hit all the houses? And they just run in that bitch. <laughs> Customs officers, you know, uh, FBI, all that shit. Found. 
having fled NYPD. Eduardo Monica Willie Hernando <laughs> Trujillo <laughs> and others are each charged with multiple counts of conspiracy to distribute narcotics. If and real quick, just so you guys, while we have their names fresh in your head right now, here is the actual federal case that I was able to pull up on Pacer for you guys. As you can see here, Eastern District of New York in Brooklyn, that's where they were indicted out of. You got Hernando Sanchez Hanau, right? Marijuana sell, distribute, dispense, 21 USC 846, right? This is the conspiracy charge in 841, you know, possession, uh, importation, exportation, 952. I remember I used to charge this all the time with people trying to import drugs. Okay, 21 USC 952 again, bam, marijuana. And this is how you know it's the 90s because they spell it with the, with the H in it, okay? That's way back in the day. They no longer spell it like that anymore. But this was back in the day. Moro Trujillo, right? That's the guy that they met with that had the warrant from the DEA. Uh, here's Gustavo. Here's Rocio, the girl, right? Londano, the one offering up her baby. Okay. Uh, uh, so she got some of the charges dismissed. She probably cooperated. <laughs> uh, let's see here if the other guy got his shit. Okay, they, these two probably cooperated. I think these are the two. Yeah, the two, the, the couple, Monica and Willie, right? Here they are. Right? It's crazy, 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 guys. This was a real case. I got it right here. Here's Mauro Trujillo. He never got arrested, and we're going to talk about that here in a second. This guy got some of the stuff dismissed as well. He probably, um, imprisonment time served. Okay. So, uh, let's see here. He probably cooperated too since he got time served. Juan Robello, Robello, Humberto Rojas. Okay, and then bam. Uh, this was actually, uh, the complaint was filed on uh, February, uh, sorry, January 27, 1993, okay, and arrest warrant issued. So they had the arrest warrants on the 27th of January, and then they went ahead on, as you guys can see, February the next day, February 4th, 1993, motion to unseal complaint. That means that they arrested him on the 3rd because everything was sealed. They got the arrest warrants, everything ready to go, and then bam, on the 3rd, they went and arrested them, okay, which makes sense. And then the next day, they were brought in front of the judge, which is makes sense why on the next day, it was unsealed when they went to the judge. Okay, and this is an older case, guys, so unfortunately we can't look at the documents. I would love to read that criminal complaint, but I can't pull it up right now because um, this is an old-ass case. And look, nothing from it actually is, you can see. You can't wow. even look. So I'll try to see if I can get it somehow. But um, but yeah. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead and continue on with it. FBI Special Agent Mary Setzer. And if you guys remember, she was the undercover woman playing the secretary. She looks like a secretary, actually. So, <laughs> all pled guilty. However, Mauro Trujillo, also known as Restrepo, fled the country and left for Colombia. That boy was gone. He turned into fucking Goku in this bitch, man. He was like, "Oh, y'all all got arrested? I'm good." The FBI is looking for information regarding the whereabouts of Mr. Trujillo. If anybody has that information, they can call the New York office of the FBI. At 212-384-1000. More than a year of dangerous undercover work by the agents and officers of the C-13 task force helped cripple a drug cartel many thought was unstoppable. Bam. Hope you guys enjoyed that one, man. Uh, that one was crazy. Uh, <laughs> uh, so what are your thoughts on that, Dollface? Um, question. What do they do with the drugs that they capture? Burn them. Really? You destroy them. Yeah, you destroy them. 
Uh, I, 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 always I remember when like, we used to seize the drugs, we would burn them or, do, or throw them. We bring them to the facility and they, they just destroy them. Okay. Yeah. They have like facilities that just specialize in destroying that shit. I always wondered. Yeah. Like how yeah. did, but how does it get? People say, street? oh, they just smoke it. Like, okay, bro. I don't really... think they smoke it, but it's, I, nah, I, we would I destroy it. I would, I would be there sometimes to witness it to get it, witness it, it getting destroyed. Okay. Gotcha. So yeah. Yeah. You file, file paperwork, all that shit, you destroy it. Gotcha. So um and you would have a couple agents there witnessing it and you destroy it um okay anything else anything uh, uh any other thoughts um it was a great interesting case you liked like it? yeah yeah i loved it cool it was good cool awesome uh well guys hope you guys enjoyed that one man that one took a lot of work man uh and uh like the video subscribe to the channel and uh other than that man check us out on instagram uh we'll drop your uh where can the people find you they could find me on Instagram at dollface duh, D-U-H. And there you can find me and all my links. Bam. And mine is Unplugged Phase. You guys know, man. All the links will be in the description below. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode, man. It was great. And FedEx is out, man. And here's the other uh, intro, guys. Let me know what you guys' thoughts on this. Comment below if you thought the first intro is better or the second intro. I'll give you guys a sneak peek of the second one right now. Let me know what y'all think below. Peace. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. The sheriff is an official in a county or independent city responsible for keeping kidnapping guys, you know, happens in, in the drug game. Um, so on this day, guys, this is September 29, 2014. I was on duty that day. So obviously, you're always on duty when you're a special agent, right? Because, you you know, you're plain clothes. No one else has these documents, by the way. I've been looking everywhere, and no one has them. Ain't nobody going to be able to tell you all this.